Well, I think that one of the contexts, of course, is our self-esteems, our self-images. In fact, that's just the point that I just made as far as the way that goes with our female friends. Like, I don't know if you're aware that the, probably the biggest problem that females in our world face is the problem of self-esteem. Guys face it too, though. Like, we act like we don't face it the same way the females do, but they do. Guys are influenced by it in the same way. And I think that this whole notion of who we are, what we think of ourselves, is absolutely huge when it comes to living the life that Christ wants us to live. Whether or not we're successful at being what Jesus wants us to be is so much a part of simply how we perceive ourselves. We always think that the biggest problems are the fact that we face temptation all the time. Or people don't have as strong a desire to serve Christ as they need to. Or life's struggles and hardships beat us down. Or our material successes distract us from being what God wants us to be. Or we're just plain selfish. But I just wonder sometimes if the fact is we just don't realize what we have in Christ. And what we have in Christ makes all the difference in terms of the way that we think of ourselves. And so I want to ask this question this morning to begin. What is our condition in God through Christ? What is our condition in God through Christ? And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, if you would. It's on page 831 in the Pew Bibles. Philippians chapter 2. And I want to read first the same verses that we read last week, because these are just so important even for today. Look at Philippians chapter 2 in the first few verses, and really, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, Paul says... And the whole point for him saying that is that this is exactly what we have if we recognize it. He gives us the conditions under which we can live in such a way that we're not just living for ourselves. Because God has given us the encouragement of being united with Christ. We have received the comfort of his love. We do have fellowship with his spirit. And we have received from him tenderness and compassion. And then on top of all of that, as we saw last week, we see the example of Christ, which comes in verses 5 through 11. Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but became a human being, sacrificing himself on the cross, and he did it for us. So he not only sets us an incredible example, but he shows us just how wonderful we are in his eyes by dying for us. And that's the context under which we live out our lives in Christ. This puts us in a certain position before God. In fact, I would say this is the primary condition by which we should identify ourselves. And so this morning you could be ill. It could be that you've lost a loved one. It could be that you're having relationship struggles. It could be that you have financial struggles. 
It may be that you're entrenched in an addiction. It could be that you're a student and school has not gone well. There's lots of ways in which we can struggle and look at life and say, man, I'm a failure. Things are not going well for me. But all the while, our primary condition is that God, through Christ, loves us and gave himself for us and put us in a position of incredible advantage. And that's not just a mental attitude. You know, a lot of times Christians, I I hear this even from Christians, they talk about how we're supposed to just have this positive mental attitude. Think positively about everything. Always be optimistic. Always look on the bright side. And the fact is, if that's all human-centered, I don't really care about it. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me that we would have that kind of perception if we're just coming from the human perspective. But if we're coming from the perspective of God, who has done these wonderful things for us, he does put us in a position of advantage. We are the ones who have received all of this. You know, the story of people who have won the lottery, like some amazing lottery prize, and then end up miserable... are cliche. Like, that's just what happens. All of a sudden, everyone wants something from them. Everyone wants to use them. And then they all do foolish things with their money. They often end up not having any idea who their friends are. Their new life context of being incredibly wealthy sometimes becomes worse After they win. And that's exactly the opposite of how we stand in Christ. In Christ, our new circumstances through God in Jesus set up a worldview for us in which our circumstances are in fact wonderful. And so we want to focus on some verses this morning that are in response to exactly that context. Like you can't read verses 12, 13, and following in Philippians chapter 2 without getting this first context right. If you don't understand what it is that we have in Jesus and just how wonderful God is in blessing us the way that he has, if you don't get that, then verses 12, 13, 14, etc. aren't going to make a whole lot of sense. But if you get that, all of a sudden everything fits exactly the way that it should. Look at verse 12. Therefore, okay, based on what we just have been talking about, based on this wonderful position, this wonderful condition that we have in God, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And in verses 12 through 13, and really right down through verse 18, Paul is expecting that we're going to read those words in light of what we've just read in terms of the condition that we possess through God in Christ. There's some things that are interesting. Like, it's not decisive whether or not the Philippians have Paul there to hold their hands. He says, basically, whether I'm there or not, not only in my presence... But now much more in my absence. I want you to live a certain way. I don't want to have to hold your hand, nor should I have to hold your hand. You remember what it was like when the first time you ever rode a bike? 
probably, and in fact, not just the first time you ever rode a bike, but probably the first time you ever taught one of your children to ride a bike, you had your hand or your parents had the hand on the back of the seat or on the frame of the bicycle. And some father or mother tried to run along with you as you learned to ride that bike. And unfortunately, sometimes it's down a hill. And then they trip and they fall, and they're the ones with the bloody knees. But they're, they're going behind you, and they're going pushing the bicycle, and they're running as fast as they can. But all of a sudden, they can't quite keep up, and the bike gets away from them. And unfortunately, the bike gets away from you. And the moment that you realize that your parents are no longer holding on to the bike, instant panic sets in. And you're scared to death. I'm all alone here, traveling at what seems like top speed, with these wheels underneath me rolling, and I can't control them at all. And sometimes I wonder if that's what Paul's thinking of. The Philippians might be a little bit frightened that he's no longer holding on to the bike. And so they may well panic. I think that we're supposed to have a different perspective than that. I think we're supposed to be like this kid. Is that not to be our perspective? (laughs) God doesn't let go and just leave us by ourselves with no hope and no opportunity. He's still with us. This kid says, rock and roll, everybody, with your new bike. And that's exactly, in one sense, the way we should be. God is still with us. He wants the Philippians to keep riding their bikes. And even though it looks like he's maybe left his hand off, in another sense, of course, he hasn't. And God is continuing to be there with us. And so we need to have uh, maybe a little bit more of that kind of perspective. Well, look at the end of verse 12 and verse 13, because I think this provides the proper perspective for what God wants us to have. The end of verse 12 says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, at first, I have to admit these words don't look all that encouraging. But I'm absolutely convinced that the end of verse 12 especially, we read wrongly. What is the context of the end of verse 12? The verse that makes it sound as though we're going to try and gain our own salvation and that we have to do so scared to death of what God might do to us at any moment. 
The context is what God has done for us. The context is verses 1 through 11. The context is what we have. The context is the salvation that we possess in Jesus. What we have, Paul already told us, is the encouragement of being united in Christ. What we have is that we've already received comfort from His love. What we have is the fellowship with His Spirit. What we have is tenderness and compassion that we've received from God. And so working out our salvation is not a process of working so as to be saved because we already have that. It's instead a process of living out what we already have and that is our salvation. And so we're not working to get salvation. We are working out or exercising what we already have. In fact, Paul, in one sense, is simply saying, become everything that God has made you. Become what you are. You're wrestling with all of this, trying to be something, because you think that's not what you are. And God says, no, I have made you this. Now just be who you are. One of the ways he shows this, I want you to look at verses 12 and 13 and just kind of read through this silent to yourself. And I want you to notice the times when he says you and your. And then I want you to realize that every time Paul says you or your in verses 12 and 13, it's in the plural. There is not one time in verses 12 and 13 that the word you there is in the singular. And so Paul is not making some statement about how we're trying to work out or get our salvation for ourselves by our behavior. That's not at all the point. Because all those yous are plural. Instead, he's talking to the church. In fact, talking to a saved church. And he says, your salvation is based on what God has done. Not in who you are by yourselves. And so all of this actually makes me wonder if Paul isn't pointing back somehow to Judea and Syntyche. Remember chapter 4 verse 2? The arguing, the fact that these ladies can't get along, that they're thinking a bit too highly of themselves. My sense is that when in verse 12, Paul says that we shouldn't be thinking too highly of ourselves... Instead, we should, in trembling and fear, approach God, that what he really means is that we need to have humility. God is the one who's responsible for this, not you. Any status you have before him is not your own. It's purely his. And so you you approach God with trembling and fear based not on what you've done, but absolutely on what God has done. It's a question of humility. It's like what Paul says in Romans 12, 3. He says, "For the by the grace given me... In fact, I have this on the screen. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And that's not a question of whether or not one is saved. It's a question of how you think of yourself in light of your salvation. And so Paul, in chapter 2, verse 12, is simply calling for sober judgment judgment rather than arrogance he's not telling christians that they constantly need to fear whether or not they're saved 
He's saying you are saved. Have confidence about God and what he's done there. And then as you approach this salvation that you've received, have humility about that, remembering that God is the one who worked this salvation out for you. And then just in case you have any doubts about whether or not God has worked out this salvation for you and continues to work it out, he gives you verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And my question is, has he done that or has he not? Is he doing that or is he not? And it seems to me that God is going to be faithful. That God is in fact working that out in you according to his good pleasure. He's doing something wonderful in you. He has done something wonderful in you. We're simply recipients of what God has done. And we need to act and live as those who've received this kind of salvation. So again, we become not something that we aren't. We don't move from not having this to becoming something special. We instead move from being what we are to actually living out what we are. You know, there's been a lot of talk in the last few days about Queen Elizabeth. She had a big event take place. What's that? 90th birthday. The fact that she's 90 years old means that she's getting old. One of these days... Probably before she's a hundred, but one never knows. Didn't her mother live till a hundred and something? Yeah. Why would you know that? So she could live that long. We don't know. But she certainly is getting older. And that means that one of these days, if he is still alive, Charles is going to be king. And one of the things that people have been discussing a lot lately is just the fact that nobody really wants Charles to be king. Like, have you noticed that all the news these days is about the younger set? People want to talk about Will and Kate. Nobody ever wants to talk about Charles and Camilla. Let's not even mention it. And so, despite the fact that this gentleman will one of these days be king, no one wants to talk about the fact that he's going to be king because Charles hasn't acted very king-like. But when he becomes king, whether he acts like it or not, he's going to be king. It doesn't matter what he's done. It matters what he has had already claimed about himself, what he has received, his kingship. And now it will be, or then it will be, time for Charles to start acting like King Charles. In other words, Charles needs to start acting like what he is. He will be king. Will he live like a king? Will he act like a king? Because he's going to be king. Jesus wants us to act as those who have received salvation. Sometimes we act like, let's not talk about that. We're not really acting the way we should when we have received salvation. 
we need to become what we are. Well, he tells us what he wants us to be in verse 14 and following. And, and just hear these words in the context of Judea and Syntyche and then think of your own relationships. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. He doesn't say so that you can get your salvation. He says so that you can live your salvation out, so that you can be blameless and pure in the way that you live in response to your salvation. Blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I'm poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming down from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I wonder what Judea and Syntyche felt like when they read that. Because Paul is saying, at least to those two ladies, but then also to us, in light of what it is that you are, Live like that with each other. Without the grumbling. Without the complaining. Without the arguing. Like, can you imagine in the church if we all took this really seriously? And, and by the way, when I say that, I'm, man, you talk about looking right back at myself. I would love to say that I always do everything involved in my ministry without ever complaining and ever grumbling and ever talking behind anybody's back behind your backs. I'd love to be able to say that. But sometimes my wife overhears it. Now sometimes I walk away from one of you or from her or from somebody else and I grumble and complain under my breath and nobody ever hears it. And you never know. And you just think, you know, he just does his job. No. It's not always that way. I'm human like you are. Sometimes I grumble and complain. And Paul says, get rid of that. Get rid of it because God has done something else in you. He's made it so that grumbling and complaining shouldn't be part of who you are because your attitude is supposed to be that of Christ Jesus. And so someone asks me to do something or I'm in the middle of something and someone else isn't helping or we just disagree with somebody about something that we're doing and I grumble under my breath. I need to have the attitude of Christ Jesus. And that's all dependent on what God has done and whether or not I recognize that and then live it out. And then finally, in the rest of this chapter, Paul gives us two great examples. You know, first Christ is the example in verses 5 through 11. And then Paul calls himself one who is being poured out like a drink offering. And he also is an example. 
But we don't have to think that this is just for Christ and it's just for apostles. Because Timothy and then Epaphroditus are singled out by Paul for living exemplary lives. Exactly the way that God wants them to live. Look at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. And then he says in verse 20, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. You know, earlier in verses 2, 3, 4 of chapter 2, Paul has talked about how everyone looks out for their own interests and that that's not what we're supposed to do. And then he singles out Timothy as doing exactly what Paul says. He doesn't just look out for his own interests, but for the interests of others and ultimately for Jesus Christ. He goes on to talk about Epaphroditus. And he basically says, you Philippians should be so proud of Epaphroditus. He came down here to serve me. He brought the good things that you gave to me. And in the process, he put himself at jeopardy. He got so sick. He was so ill. All for the cause of Christ. He almost died. All because he wanted to put others first and not look to his own interests. Now, when we say that, when we say, oh, we're not going to look out for our own interests, we're going to look to the interests of others, it seems so difficult. In fact, it, we constantly want to make excuses for why we can't do this. Well, we don't really mean that you have to sacrifice everything for everybody else. You do have to do some things for yourselves, we always say. And even as I say that, I want to say, and I get that. But this text is pointing us toward a new kind of lifestyle, something drastically different, a different mindset entirely. In fact, the mindset of Christ. And I can't see anything here that hedges on that advice. I can't see any compromises here. When Epaphroditus puts himself out there and almost dies for the cause of Christ, he is not holding anything back. He's not saying, well, I'm going to preserve just this little corner of things for myself. No reservations, no compromises, no excuses. Just considering others better than himself. And we might think, I can't do it. But verse 12 and 13 tells me that I can. That God is working within me. And working within you. To do something that we can't feature. That I can be a completely different person. And so if you've got anger issues and you think you can't escape them, I guarantee you can through Jesus Christ and the conditions he sets up for us in God. And if you're addicted, God can change that. If you're selfish, God can change that. 
If you're absolutely so self-centered that you can't help yourself, God can change that in you. He promises that he can. We are not weak. We might be fearing and trembling in the sense of humility, but we are not incapable of responding to God in positive ways and what it is that he has done for us in Jesus. And so we ask the question again, what is our condition in God through Christ? And the condition is that he has made this kind of change and this kind of lifestyle in us a real possibility. And so if you've ever thought to yourself, I can't do it, you're right. But God has already done it. He's already made you what you are. And we simply now need to live out who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we feel weak. Sometimes we're tired. Sometimes we have lived a repeated pattern of life that doesn't look like what you want it to be. But God, we reflect this morning on who it is that you've made us. You've made us those who have salvation in you. You've made us those who are your children. You've made us special and capable and therefore through you powerful to be different. And so work in us in the coming days and help us to be different. Different because you're working within us. Working in us that we might do your will and your work all for your good pleasure. Bring that about in our lives this week. Through Christ we pray. Amen.